Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. This particular spot is called Tehu. It's a small headland, so the waves seem to resound more here in a bit of rocky outcrop. And sometimes you can hardly hear yourself talk. <laughs> but it's, it's nice, I, I like it. Yeah, it's beautiful, it's beautiful. On the balcony of Hami Piripi's batch in Ahipara, near the northern tip of Aotearoa, when you look out to the ocean, it feels like you couldn't be further from the troubles of the world. But isolation has its own issues. Pirifi, a former chief executive of the Māori Language Commission, is chairman of the development body, or runanga, for Te Rarawa. And in 2011, the iwi got frustrated with poor internet and phone connections. They wanted to build their own fibre-optic network, but the government wouldn't help. So they set up a meeting with Chinese investors, who came with their own translators and their own terms. It not one dollar, we knew it one dollar for government, so we had to borrow money off the Chinese, and... At that meeting we had where they had their three translators, in half an hour, with no paper, but an intense discussion, they agreed to lend us $6 million. $6 million? Yeah. To, to, to finance the network. So they made good on that money? They did lend you their money? Yes, they did. Yes, they, they did. And, and initially we couldn't pay it back. <laughs> we hadn't made enough sales, you know. And, um, but they were so understanding of that. They... They could have foreclosed, they could have shut us down, they could have seized our, our, um, the, our assets that we'd laid down, um, but it didn't. They, they treated us like we were part of their family. Are we paranoid? The things that were happening to me, breaking in my office and a series of other events, they were designed to scare me. Or is the Chinese Communist Party out to get us? The choice is not between Washington and Beijing. The choice is between sovereignty and servitude. From RNZ and Bird of Paradise Productions, this is Red Line. I'm John Daniel. And I'm Guy Espiner. In this four-part series, we're asking, can New Zealand continue to walk the thin red line between what some see as an evil empire? We know that they are slaves. We also know that they're being used to harvest organs. But others see as our greatest economic opportunity and the centre of a new world order. I do have a lot of respect for the things that they're doing. I mean, they have a vision. They are literally going to build a kind of platform but from China through to Europe. The far north of New Zealand might seem a strange place to go searching for the New World Order. But we went there because there was a theory we were particularly keen to check out. When you've got a determined state actor who is, has a particular agenda, they can target local authorities or iwi who have particular responsibilities. This is University of Canterbury Professor Anne-Marie Brady, an international expert in Chinese politics. 
For example, they might have the rights to approve a wharf development or some other infrastructure, crucial infrastructure like power. And they can uh, get approvals or um, set up arrangements and relationships which might be out of sync with the wider foreign policy concerns. What Professor Brady is describing there is part of a much bigger strategy playing out all around the world. The idea is that China uses massive investments and infrastructure as part of a push for global supremacy, building up and buying off rather than bombing its way to domination. At the heart of this is a policy brought in by President Xi Jinping in 2013 called One Belt, One Road or Belt and Road, a grand scheme for linking the world's trade route. The belt connects the land, the road on the sea, the promise that they hold is during prosperity. We're breaking barriers, we're making history, the war we're dreaming of. All roads will lead to China. It sounds a bit like Lord of the Rings, doesn't it? One ring to bind them all. Yeah, and it's happening on an epic Peter Jackson scale, and complete with its own CCP propaganda. It involves massive infrastructure projects around the world worth between four and eight trillion US dollars. Ports and highways, telco projects and power stations, it's like buying up all the key utilities on the Monopoly board. Well, there's been a slowdown over the last couple of years. So far, more than 130 countries have engaged with Belt and Road on at least some level including New Zealand. I mean, Belt and Road, if you look at what they're trying to achieve, you sort of sit back and go, gosh, this is incredible. You know, I mean, they are literally going to build a kind of platform from China through to Europe. Incredible to John Key, incredibly dangerous to China sceptics, like American General H.R. McMaster. China has used this One Belt, One Road as part of a, a, a really pernicious effort to extend its geostrategic influence, right? These are not primarily economic development projects, right? These countries have to realize the new vanguard of the Chinese Communist Party is a Chinese Communist Party official with a Chinese National Bank official who's carrying a duffel bag full of cash. That cash is often meant to pay offs to corrupt officials, you know, to give them access uh, and to to allow you know, to, for these officials to turn a blind eye to the really bad terms uh, of these Chinese loans that indebt future generations beyond what they can pay. Um, but then, but then also, it, this is meant to create a dependency, uh, so so that China can exert its influence in a geostrategic area, and and to do for what purpose? again, to create an exclusionary area of primacy. But this idea that taking money from the Chinese is somehow selling out New Zealand's traditional allies doesn't sit well with Harmi Pitipi. The way he sees it, telling Māori to watch out because the Chinese are being too friendly, is galling, to say the least. It's amazing, you know, because 
Here we are after 170 years of repression, of our country being stolen from us, of our people being marginalised and disenfranchised as citizens, and, and accuse them of being too friendly with us. <laughs> I mean, that really, to me, that really spells it out. The your natives are our natives, you know, and, and leave our natives alone, sort of thing. Well, they can bugger off, because we've, we're sick of that. We're, we're, that. That era in our history is gone. <laughs> Sitting on Hami Pirupi's deck, you get a very different perspective on New Zealand-China relations. These are iwi-China relations, and when compared to the Americans or the British, for him, there's a lot to like about the Chinese. The great thing about Chinese people coming here is that they, they bring their own money. They don't, they don't come looking to exploit someone else's resources. Say, so I'd rather stick with the Chinese. You've got to look at the mistake the Australians are making. What do you mean? Well, they just become so arrogant and, and um, insulting. To the Chinese? To the Chinese, yeah. And so... So the Chinese take a, um, a, a commercial approach to it and everybody squeals and say, how dare they? And as for Australia lecturing China on human rights... Hypocrisy. Total hypocrisy. The Australian um, regime of, of their constitutional relationship with the Aboriginal people is probably one of the worst in the world. He makes some pretty good points, doesn't he? He does, but... Don't you think it's a little weird that this Chinese company would offer a loan of six million in half an hour to an iwi in the far north and then go easy on them when they can't repay? It's a Chinese state-owned telco. Well, it's a subsidiary of China Telecom Group, a state-owned telco. Yeah, and that parent company, China Telecom Group, is one of 30-odd companies that Americans are not allowed to buy shares in because the US says it's one of the companies that directly or indirectly support the People's Liberation Army, the Chinese army. Mm, I don't think they're going to attack Taiwan from Ahipara. I mean, what sort of influence would the Chinese possibly hope to get by funding a fibre-optic cable in the far north of Aotearoa? Well, you might ask the same question about our Pacific Island neighbours. In the last 15 years or so, China has spent more than $2 billion in the South Pacific. There's a flash sports stadium and convention centre in Vanuatu, a 28-storey high-rise in Fiji, Rarotonga's courthouse and police headquarters. They even built a huge port in Vanuatu, half a kilometre long. That could fit an entire aircraft carrier. OK, this is the whole idea of debt trap diplomacy. Well, what the Chinese tend to do is that they put heavy investment into countries that simply don't have the means to pay back the debt. So they're getting countries addicted to debt, and then when they call in the debt and the countries can't pay, the Chinese will take a port or a territory or take an island. That's security analyst Dr Malcolm Davis from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. And New Zealand's Foreign Minister Nanaya Mahuta also touched on this in a speech in April 2021. China can play a role in the long-term economic recovery and resilience of the region. But there is a substantial difference between financing loans and contributing to greater ODA investment, in particular to the Pacific. We must move towards a more sustainable Pacific that respects the mana of the Pacific sovereignties. ODA being overseas development assistance, so aid, not loans. But this debt diplomacy theory itself has been debunked by several credible Western think tanks, so... Is this Chinese investment 
really so sinister. And anyway, this is mostly happening to our Pacific neighbours, right, rather than New Zealand. Yeah, but that's our backyard, and we're vulnerable too, especially in small towns like Ahipara, where the Chinese lent the six million for an iwi fibre optic cable. Both Anne-Marie Brady and the SIS say local councils are a soft target because they need money for infrastructure and they probably lack the savvy and rigour of central government. SIS boss Rebecca Kitteridge made exactly this point at a parliamentary select committee. We're speaking to local government New Zealand about how we can help to provide protective security and and, and it's from both uh, the Bureau and from the service. Um, How they can protect themselves, what foreign interference looks like um, and the the same issues as as you point out arise in terms of Um, funding candidates um, and travel, the kinds of briefings that we've given to um, some of the political parties in recent recent times. We've come to the quiet far north fishing village of Mangonui. Here in a converted convenience store looking out to sea, you'll find Wayne Brown, a particular type of Kiwi character. He used to be the mayor up here in the far north. He's also a millionaire businessman with a long history of commercial interests with Chinese companies and a colourful, if rather blunt view, of New Zealand's international relationships. There's a lot of scary people out there learn to live with them. New Zealand's like that little guy in the school. It's the playground. The small kid has to learn how to operate with the bullies. And Wayne Brown shares his observations in the media. We're here because one of those opinion pieces published on Stuff caught my attention. The headline asked, is it time to sell our seat on Five Eyes? The main focus of Brown's column was that New Zealand shouldn't make the mistake Australia has made and criticise China too heavily, because we might face trade sanctions as a result. The consequences are all over the Aussie media. For the best part of a year, China's trade sanctions have hit industry after industry. China has uh, continued to impose tariffs and hurt Australian producers. The market's actually dropped to zero. We're all in survival mode. What I understand from the Chinese officials, you know, if we keep on doing things that cause them that displeasure, they are going to find ways to punish various Australian sectors. I was pointing out that we don't want that to happen to us. We'll come to that soon. First, a little more about Wayne Brown's business dealings with China and beyond. I was a joint owner of a clothing and sports goods company. We had a surfboard factory in Zhongshan and utilised all the T-shirt and clothing industry. And I, I was involved with Huawei early in the piece. Okay, so Wayne Brown is a laconic millionaire in shorts and a t-shirt, but he would have more experience with China than most New Zealand business people. He was there when the free trade agreement with China was signed in Beijing in 2008. He has a milk company that signed a multi-million dollar deal with a Chinese SOE. He also leads a business delegation up to a province called Liaoning. It's in the northeast of China although I'd never heard of it. Nor me, and as Wayne Brown points out, it demonstrates how ignorant we are about this country we are now so reliant on. Often when I'm making business speeches, you know, I ask the audience, anyone here heard of Leo Ning? No. Anyone heard of France? Yes. Well, Leo Ning and France are the same size and the same population, excepting Leo Ning's got a big, bigger economy and the same. Anyone heard of 
Xin Yang, no. Anyone heard of Paris? Yes. Well, much the same thing, excepting Xin Yang's much older and has much more of the top 100 companies in it. At first, when you listen to Wayne Brown, it's all pretty simple. China has, you know, more than a billion well-off people. So why wouldn't you try there? It's a good start. And, and uh, they have been more open to trading with us. The Americans produce the sort of stuff that we produce. So it's, it's not an anti-American thing. It's just they've already got lots of butter and milk and, and you can hardly expect them to eat more. They eat a lot more than they should already from what I've seen. But he goes a lot further than that. Wayne Brown, after two decades of close involvement with Chinese business and a career in local body politics, has now taken a strong public stance about how New Zealand should line up in the global game of US-China rivalry. He thinks New Zealand should at least consider getting out of Five Eyes. Is it worth it? You know, and maybe we could sell our seat. It might be... Are you serious about that? Well, the Japanese have expressed interest in joining. And, um, and so, you know, sell it to them, if you can. Is this really worthwhile? Are we getting enough out of this for the risks that we're taking? For me, that idea of selling our seat on the Five Eyes shows just how blinded Wayne Brown is by the idea of generating revenue, because it's never going to happen. It's just not the way these alliances work. But for him, the big risk is that if we speak up like Australia does, we'll get punished economically by China. And he makes much the same point John Key and Hami Pirapi make when Western powers criticise China's human rights record. But now America's saying that China's committing genocide in Xinjiang with the Uyghur concentration camps. Well, uh, I don't know the details of that, and I'm not being an apologist for people doing bad things, but, I mean, America um, attacked Iraq without, without any bloody good proper reason either. So you have to ask, don't you, whether this is at least part of the motivation of the CCP when they allow people to do business in China... They're hoping people will come around to their worldview. Well, I did put that to him. Do you think that um, your thinking around China has been influenced by by the business that you, you've done with them? And do you think that they would try to, to to buy influence in that sense or to... No, not really. I mean, I don't count on nothing. I don't imagine there's a person up there who's even given me any, any, any thought any more than I imagine there's anyone in America who's given me any thought. I mean, New Zealand doesn't count anyway to be honest. Which makes you wonder why New Zealand was the first country China signed a free trade agreement with, why they pour investment into the country, or why a company from Shanghai would loan an iwi $6 million to build a fibre optic cable for a tiny town in the far north. Yeah, but there's no proof that any of these people are somehow targets of CCP influence operations. No, but all of the pro-China people we've talked to, John Key, Hami Pirapi, Wayne Brown, they all have the same arguments. China is a good market. They're good to do business with. They're not perfect, but hey, nor is America. And all those people have benefited, one way or another, from what China has to offer. And don't forget, China has a super ministry, the United Front, dedicated to pushing these kinds of messages. Or do you think we should just take everything at face value? Well, no, you're right about the United Front. When I first started reading up on all this months ago, I thought it was just a theory, but no, the United Front Works Department is an actual CCP government department. 
And it's not as though its existence is a secret. They have a website, and even if you don't read or speak Chinese, a rough Google translation will give you a taste of what they're about. I've been looking at that website for months, but I'm blocked now, something I realised just after I attended a Zoom meeting on Xinjiang at the invitation of the Chinese embassy. That might be a coincidence. Anyway, last time I could see, while the world was talking about the genocide of Uyghurs in Xinjiang, on the United Front website, there was a lovely video of a Chinese New Year party in a yurt, captioned, Xinjiang is a good place. So, what we'd call propaganda. Yeah, the United Front has been around since the 1930s. It was one of the CCP's three magic weapons that Chairman Mao described, the other two being armed struggle and internal party discipline. That's where Anne-Marie Brady's 2017 paper Magic Weapons got its title, and it remains one of the definitive texts on how the United Front operates. There's a word in, that's used in Chinese called shintou, it means saturation, like saturating a sponge. So um, United Front work and uh, what the party calls quite happily propaganda, xuanchan, in other words information management and censorship, follows a saturation approach. So that's multi-level, multi-platform. And some of those platforms are going to have a um, you know, really resounding result and some of them will have a lessened result. But collectively, they have an impact. So this is subtle. It's a long game and it's played out on a broad front, a united front. And the aim is to bring the world round to China's point of view. And as Peter Mattis, a US expert on Chinese intelligence, points out, the scale is vast. The resources of the United Front system or the influence building system within the the party are very difficult to overestimate. When you see hiring notices from the last few years, you see, you know, we look, we're looking for 15,000 people. We're looking for 6,000 people to join the the United Front work departments in various places. So the job of this massive United Front organisation is to gather intelligence and influence people in power in and outside China. And United Front watchers claim it extends to using political donations to buy that influence, that positive view of China. And there are without doubt stories to be told about political donations, but we can't go there yet because we've got cases in New Zealand before the courts, so we're going to have to wait for a bonus episode for that. We have plenty of evidence that our political parties have been targeted. This is Anne-Marie Brady again. You know, what I have have said about it is that our political parties, their MPs and their administrative bodies, they, in the past, they definitely didn't, I'm pretty sure they didn't really understand who they were dealing with and what was going on here. But they do now. And Zeming Mok says unless they're involved in politics, Chinese New Zealanders might not understand who they're dealing with either. If you're a Chinese person you want to get involved in stuff, and if you're like a mainland Chinese and you're trying to represent the mainland Chinese community, you'll probably pass through some of these groups. And then you'll have some contact with the embassy. And of course if you're a dissident, if you're a mainland Chinese dissident, you'll also have contact with the embassy. Right? And what will they'll that, be, they'll, they'll they'll be spying look, on you. What will that look like? That, <laughs> they'll that, turn up to your protests and take photos of you. I know people get like, you know, phone harassment sometimes. It's a little bit like weird. Yeah, so that's the blunt end of United Front work. But it's actually very hard to see for the average person because there are dozens of these United Front groups operating in New Zealand, all with benign sounding names like the Association for the Peaceful Reunification of China or the Chinese People's Association for Friendship with Foreign Countries. 
Catherine Churchman, a lecturer in Asian Studies at Victoria University in Wellington, makes it something of a sport to catch out these United Front groups, which are hidden amongst the legitimate independent groups, such as the New Zealand Chinese Association. So they can be tough to spot, even for her. In early 2018, within a week, I got two people trying to get hold of me to to get me to go to conferences in China. And those two people... One of them called me from Queensland, and I got him to send me an email so I'd have his name, and then I could look it up. Um, And he turned out to be the head of the Queensland chapter of the Association for the Peaceful Reunification of China, which is an anti-Taiwan, anti-democratic United Front group. And uh, so I thought, well, there's no way I'm going to even count them going to uh, a conference that that somebody like that has... invited me to and somebody else in Wellington also had tried to get hold of me to invite me and I just I didn't uh, I didn't make any contact so uh, but that person was also involved in United Front groups. I still couldn't really get what this was all about until we very nearly got burned ourselves. We were casting around for voices of just ordinary, everyday Chinese New Zealanders, and we hit upon James Sun. My name is James. Yeah, I come to New Zealand in, in 2000 at the age of 12 years old. His dad came to New Zealand in the 1990s and is a member of the Chinese Communist Party, or maybe a former member. Yeah, James says for people who were CCP members back in China, there's no clear procedure for cancelling their membership. Now they're living in New Zealand. The tradition is everybody just turn to ignore the fact and not talk about it. Right, OK, <laughs> fair enough. James seemed like a promising voice to include in this podcast. He's media savvy, what we'd call good talent. I have a close relationship with New Zealand media, including Chinese media. Most, most of my articles in Chinese like to discuss about the New Zealand politics, culture and, 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 and Chinese relationship. And crucially, he was prepared to talk to us on tape. It's worth noting that we spent a lot of time talking to different people because we were conscious that the Chinese community here is not monolithic. We know that the dissidents are politically engaged, and Tsiming Mok has been an outspoken critic of the CCP and the media here. But we wanted to know, what do ordinary Chinese New Zealanders think? Well, the short answer is, none of them wanted to comment publicly if their views were critical of the CCP. But James is different. He has a leadership role in the New Zealand Chinese community. He's not only working in the media, he spent five years heading the New Zealand Chinese Youth Federation. They've had funding for trips and events from both the Chinese and New Zealand governments. So before I did this taped interview, I had an initial phone call with James, just scoping out some areas we'd like to talk about. But a day or two after John had called James... I got a rather aggressive message from Anne-Marie Brady. Why were we talking to United Front operatives? We had no idea what she was talking about, but it turns out James had gone on Chinese social media and written a long post in Chinese about how he was going to be interviewed for this podcast and put out some comments that looked to us like CCP talking points. One of them being that RNZ isn't as bad as the BBC. Yeah, thanks James, I guess. China has been trying to discredit the BBC, saying it's reporting on Xinjiang and Hong Kong is biased. 
We had very nearly been played. Anne-Marie Brady is fluent in Chinese and in the ways of the United Front. John and I were ignorant on both fronts and there's no way we would have known. I rang James back for the interview we'd arranged, but this time I was armed with a warning from Professor Brady. Do you kind of work with the United Front at all? Is that something that kind of comes up in, in your work? or well, I mean, either with the, the NZ... United Front? Oh, OK, I see what you mean. Mm, no, I don't think so, because I'm not a member or don't have any... T- I, I, for example, uh, I, I, I do attend, like, you know, events, but I don't have any, like, you know, official titles with, with or relationship with, 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 like, United Front. Just, to, to, just, uh, you just, uh, they invited me to try to participate in their events, and they, 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 uh, like, you know, they sometimes ask me to, um, help them to find, you know, volunteers or help them to promote their, their events, um, on social media. So most of the time, I'm willing to help them, yeah. So he's not an official member of the United Front, but he attends their events, he helps them find people, and he promotes their agenda in the media. Now, given he's a prominent voice in the Chinese media and is used in the mainstream media at times too, that's worth knowing, especially on issues like the treatment of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. I raised that issue with him, and his response was pretty much out of the CCP playbook. He says the vast majority of Uyghurs are living a great life there. It's on the social media site TikTok. Uh, on TikTok, you know, on TikTok, you know, um, there, there, are, there are people, you know, from, from Xinjiang, the Uyghur people, they're sharing their normal life. They have no political intention in terms of what they're pro- pro- posting on TikTok. You know, like, that, that's just their general life. Dancing, you know, like, you know, feeding animals in the farm, like, see what's actually going on to the, to the wider population over there. I know a small, I, I will say a small amount of people. Like, you, you know, you talk about Xinjiang, that's a province holding 24 million people, you know. And even there's one million people say, oh, they, are, they were, like, you know, negatively, you know, or, 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 or brutally, you know, treated by the Chinese government. But there's still, uh, like, the other 23 million people living there. That sort of logic sounds, well, pretty appalling to my ears. Like, yeah, a million people might be being brutalised, but hey, what about the other 23 million? Now, to be fair to James, I can see how any expat might wrestle with some of these issues and look to rationalise the terrible things they're hearing about the country of their birth. And he's just one of many in New Zealand pushing messages for the United Front. A lot of them choose to, to, to for example, to promote to speak for Chinese uh, Chinese uh, government, it's not because, you know, they got paid. It's because just like a lot of them, just like me, we, like, they're willing to, you know, they want to do something to in, in, increase, you know, the um, exposure in terms of encourage communication and mutual understanding. Yes, but to go back to that example he used of Uyghurs happily dancing their lives away in some sort of rural paradise, that sounds like what the CCP was saying in that bizarre press conference that you logged into. Yeah, this was a Zoom meeting run by the Chinese embassy on Xinjiang, but it felt like an elaborate practical joke. In May of 2021, in response to international condemnation of human rights violations in Xinjiang, the Chinese embassy had an invite-only press conference. 
they seem to have done the same thing all around the world. This is from one of the videos they showed us called Xinjiang, A Wonderful Place. Dating from remote antiquity, Xinjiang has been an integral and inseparable part of the Chinese territory. And I mean, just to fact check that opening sentence, Xinjiang translates as New Territory, a Chinese name given to it in the late 19th century. The indigenous people are Muslim, which is a clue as to how integral and inseparable their culture is with China. Under the strong leadership of the CPC's Central Committee, under the exceptional care of the party and the central government have devoted, with the generous assistance from the 19 pairing up provinces and cities, and through the concerted efforts of carters and the masses of all ethnic groups, Xinjiang has been transformed into a land of life, a land of thriving vitality. At this point in the video, doves are being released, people are dancing, the clouds are opening. From there we go to high-speed trains, sunlit mountains and CCP officials droning on about how the Uyghurs never had it so good. I left after 45 minutes. It was so painfully clear it was propaganda and just contemptuous, really. I think you did well to stick there for 45 minutes. Some others hung in there. Jerry Brownlee, the national MP and former foreign affairs minister, he had something to say at the end of it. He's talking here to the Chinese ambassador to New Zealand, Wu Ji. Uh, this Zoom conference... Uh, has caused me more concern about what might be happening in Xinjiang, simply because the effort appears to be to say uh, that there is nothing to see here, so move on. It makes a lot of us think, actually, there is something to see here and we need to find out what it is. So the ambassador tries to reply by saying that Xinjiang is open to journalists, so long as they abide by the rules, there's a problem with the audio. To, uh, as well as well as well as uh, diplomats. No sound. And can you can you hear me? The whole thing is a dumpster fire. And they they'd like to have uh, exchanges. The sound is going again. Candid and constructive uh, exchanges. It's like these exchanges are a metaphor for the communication between China and the West. What you get the feeling we're talking past each other. Yeah, and I think that's dangerous. Look, we are suspicious of China, and there are good reasons for that. Some of the things they say are flat-out unbelievable. Even James Sun, openly pro-CCP, who's told us about his own links to the United Front, says that the Chinese government's hope of pushing their message through obvious propaganda is self-defeating. That's their problem. They control the media, and if you control the media, you only let one word to be spoken to the rest of the world. You have to take the consequence. The consequence is that people will put a question mark on what you're saying. This whole experience of brushing up against the United Front was pretty sobering for me. You realise how ignorant most of us are to these influence operations. Without Anne-Marie Brady's knowledge, we would have had no idea James Sun was on board with the United Front. Once you know about the United Front, it opens up a whole world that was previously under the radar. We went to an anti-racism rally in Altia Square in central Auckland. Following a series of Asian hate crimes in the US, this Auckland event was supposed to be about halting racism towards Asian people. But the dissidents we've come to know in West Auckland have tipped us off that the event has been infiltrated by the United Front. Uh, we already spotted a lot of uh, uh, Chinese United, United Front people yep. in there. 
They say the United Front groups have hijacked the protest to make the classic CCP talking point that Western criticism of China is just racism. So our target is warning people that uh, CCP is behind this. Now, that's a big call because there were undoubtedly many people at that protest for genuine reasons. I believe personally that racism starts with ignorance, then it's fueled by misinformation, often because of self-interest, and unfortunately New Zealanders are not immune to that. That's Labour List MP Nasi Chen. She replaced Raymond Hall and is now Labour's only ethnic Chinese MP. But she wouldn't do an interview with us for this series, although she did give a heartfelt speech that day. Open your heart to those around you, your homes, your communities. Start building bridges with people that doesn't belong to your ethnicity so that we can all start to appreciate the differences we have And once we get past that, which is so superficial, we understand what's on the inside is so similar. To be clear, we're not saying that this demonstration was organised by the United Front. But the dissidents say the Chinese consulate issued instructions to various groups to attend to amplify the protest and its message about the dangers of racism. And the dissidents, who were trying to make their voices heard in a counter-protest, got into a scuffle. Our producer Tim Watkin asked a couple of people on the other side of the scuffle what that was all about. Excuse me, can you tell me what you're angry about there? Are you happy to we'd ask some questions? I'm, I'm, I'm Chinese. Yeah. And those people is like they are not welcome in China. No. You know, and uh, you know, this is the word they said is very rude for Chinese. That's why we don't the like. The word. It. Yeah. Which word? He don't like the Chinese party. Oh yes. So that's me. He hate Chinese people because I telling him I'm Chinese. Mm. He say, oh, you know, not Chinese because you Chinese, you belong Chinese party. So what do you think of their protests and their their criticism of the CCP? It's illegal. Illegal? Illegal in China. In China? Yeah. But okay here? But mm, it's legal, but but not uh, ethical. Not ethical? Yeah. They say that groups like this, that that the United Front is paying and funding groups like yourself. Is that true? I, I don't know about that. It's hard to prove United Front involvement. As David Tang says, they don't go around wearing stickers on their heads. But the accusation of racism is particularly effective at a time when the Black Lives Matter movement has become so strong. It's part of a global narrative that China's running to push back against criticism over those human rights abuses in Xinjiang. They're saying that the West has no right to call anyone out given their own entrenched issues with human rights. Meanwhile, New Zealand politicians are falling for United Front tricks just about every week. You see photos of them posing with people who have links to the United Front. Catherine Churchman, the academic who likes catching those United Front groups out, has tweeted photos of Finance Minister Grant Robertson, Auckland Mayor Phil Goff and Wellington Mayor Andy Foster, among many others. They're all smiling away for the camera, apparently oblivious to the message they're sending to the Chinese community. Anne-Marie Brady has gone to Parliament warning politicians about this very trap. 
Under Xi Jinping, China's intelligence organizations have consolidated and more, are more organized than they were before. And the United Front Work Department is engaged in intelligence activities. So you don't want to be seen with these people. And she says the engagement goes way beyond photo ops. What you are doing time and again is engaging with CCP and United Front organisations. And you are selecting candidates who are active in United Front um, work organisations. In 2017, James Soon, who we met earlier, put together a New Zealand-China youth forum. It was co-funded by New Zealand's Ministry for Youth Development to the tune of $25,000 and also supported by the Overseas Chinese Affairs Office. As of 2018, that organisation is officially part of the United Front itself. So New Zealand government funding effectively underwriting United Front operations? Yeah, but others say these types of trips aren't that sinister at all. Sam Johnson, the guy who set up the Student Volunteer Army, he went on that same youth forum in 2018 when it was held in Beijing. He told me... It was a really inspiring trip. The use of technology to drive innovation was particularly impressive and that we should be open to learning from China. He hadn't heard of the United Front but didn't feel co-opted into propaganda. He said lots of countries do this kind of thing and we should do more of it. Yeah, so maybe that's something of a grey area. But there's no doubt that one of the United Front's great successes in New Zealand has been taking control of the Chinese language media. Over time, our New Zealand uh, Chinese uh, newspapers, websites, TV stations, radio radio stations have gone from being truly New Zealand uh, origin, a New Zealand perspective and diverse range of views to being uh, either very blatantly pro-CCP or never ever discussing anything uh, that would upset the CCP. That's worth pausing over. What Professor Brady's saying is for the close to a quarter of a million Chinese New Zealanders here, there is no free press in New Zealand. And as Zeming Mok will tell you, most of the time the CCP don't even have to tell these news outlets what to do. The way that the Chinese government has influenced um, previously independent uh, Chinese language media outlets in New Zealand has meant that they they essentially subject themselves to self-censorship so they can distribute their news on Chinese-owned media platforms, i.e. WeChat, which is like the main mode of the distribution of those stories and that content. So they don't have to get writing instructions from Beijing. They yeah. they, they do it themselves, Yeah, right? well, they it's... also have had some instructions from what I gather. <laughs> yeah. So they do um, get a helping they, hand. They but... get a helping hand. Like, they, they have sent people to China for like media training workshops, right? It's like, yeah, let's go and learn about how to be journalists from a country with no you know, freedom of expression. It seems like a great training ground. So the New Zealand government can't protect the Chinese language media from the CCP. They can't seem to stop the CCP infiltrating our politics. Can they even protect New Zealanders who fear their families' lives are at risk? I'm not sure they are in the concentration camps or not. I'm not really sure of that because I cannot get any information about that. Next time, we'll meet a New Zealand Uyghur who fears his parents are in CCP camps. And how captured has New Zealand politics become? He calls me a friend and I think he sort of means that. 
So you, you're a friend of Xi Jinping? Well, I mean, I don't want to overstate things. He might take me off his Christmas card list, but he does see one every year. And we talked to the one New Zealand government MP prepared to tackle the CCP head-on over human rights. We know that they are slaves. We also know that they're being used to harvest organs. If slave labour concentration camps aren't a red line for New Zealand, then what is? That's next time on the final episode of Red Line. Redline is made by RNZ and Bird of Paradise Productions. It's hosted and produced by Guy Nespiner and me, John Daniel. All RNZ podcasts are available free on Apple, Spotify, iHeart or wherever you get your podcasts. And that includes our other series, The Service, which investigates New Zealand's spy agency, the SIS, during the Cold War and the previously untold story of a raid on the Czechoslovakian embassy in the 1980s. Our thanks to all the people who spoke to us for this series and were so generous with their time and insights, especially the Chinese dissident community in New Zealand. The sound engineer on Redline is Blair Stagpole. Producer and studio director is Justin Gregory. And our executive producers are Veronica Schmidt and Tim Watkin. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.